This is April 12th, 2020, Easter Sunday, and about uh, several weeks into uh, the uh, isolation, the widespread isolation mandated by this pandemic. Uh, today I'm going to comment uh, loosely on a koan in the Blue Cliff Record. This is number 87, Yunmen's Medicine and Sickness. But uh, it will I'll work in other material um, related to sickness and pandemics. So here's the case, the koan, it's very short. Yunmen that's uh, that's his Chinese name. The Japanese version is Umon. Yunmen said to his disciples, "Medicine and sickness correspond to each other. The whole earth is medicine. What is yourself?" I once uh, read quite an extensive discussion about the translation of this koan. Uh, translations uh, can often be a problem with the koans because the Chinese language, the original Chinese language of the koans is so ambiguous. Uh, there are other, these, here are some other translations. Uh, medicine and sickness fit each other. Medicine and sickness are appropriate for each other. Correspond to each other. That's what we have here. And medicine and sickness cure each other. Originally we had cure each other, but uh, it just linguistically just doesn't make sense. Yes, medicine cures sickness, but in what way can we use the word cure in terms of the sickness curing the medicine. So we settled on uh, correspond to each other. Language is often important, and not just in koans. Uh, recently, I listened to a podcast on the program called On the Media. Uh, it's broadcast on NPR. <coughs> and uh, this was uh, the April, I think April 3rd uh, broadcast of this, of this year. And the title they gave the broadcast was, the podcast was War, What Is It Good For? A Different Way of Thinking About the Coronavirus. And uh, in it, part of it, not all of it, but part of it was an interview of a, uh, a teacher at Northwestern University by the name of Eula Biss. Uh, the interviewer was Brooke Gladstone. And this Eula Biss um, teaches nonfiction writing at Northwestern. And here she 
tackles the matter of metaphor, and in particular, the metaphor of war, uh, when used to describe um, our contending with illness, and in this case, our, this pandemic. Uh, just to very briefly call out one, one part of her, her interview, uh, that, that thinking about disease as an enemy can lead too easily to xenophobia and racism. Uh, we we know now that uh, reports of violence against Asian Americans is uh, quite high, has has spiked, and uh, well, it's an old story uh, of blaming uh, foreigners on viruses. We saw it in uh, the uh, 198, the great influenza of 1918 and 19, uh, when uh, somehow the, the, this terrible uh, plague acquired the name the Spanish flu, even though it originated, according to all the research since then, it had originated in Kansas. Some of you may know that uh, just last week at a, at a G7 conference uh, of the uh, some of the, the world leaders, the biggest countries, they uh, tried to to craft an agreement uh, about how to how to deal with the pandemic, but couldn't come up with a statement because the Trump administration insisted on referring to the virus as the Chinese virus, or the, the Wuhan virus, earlier and, uh, and quite a few times since then, our president has consisted on calling it the Chinese virus. Well, uh, maybe that's not entirely inaccurate. Uh, from what we can tell, it, uh, it originated in, in China, it was at least the first uh, country where it became a huge problem, um, but why call it? Why limit it? Why why call it uh, Chinese or Spanish or American or anything else? Um, this Eula Biss is the author, most recently, of a book called On Immunity. An inoculation. So again, she she shrinks from the war metaphor for the virus uh, because it leads to xenophobia and racism, and because it shrinks our vision for the crisis. As she says, this virus does not have intent. It can't be negotiated with there will be no truce. She pointed out that uh, syphilis was always attributed to another nationality, another country. To the, to the English, it was French. To the French, it was German. 
and to the Japanese, syphilis was called the Chinese disease. It's not that the war metaphor is without entirely without value. Uh, I think it's it's it can be useful uh, in the in, in the sense that it really. Uh, can marshal our energies. Uh, it can unite us, which really hasn't happened so far as much as it could because our president refuses to uh, enlist the uh, that national national protection act um, where uh, instead of the states competing with one another and trying to outbid one another for protective equipment. Uh, this would enable the federal government to, uh, to unify the effort. And from everything I've heard, that is really what is called for here. That's, that's why uh, war metaphor uh, can, can be so useful. The problem with the war metaphor is that it's limited. It may be useful for frontline warriors like doctors and nurses in the hospitals and others in the hospitals. I know uh, it used to help me in in Sashin, especially in the day or two leading up to Sashin and, and uh, <laughs> certainly the day of Sashin. Uh, before the opening ceremony, uh, to feel that I was charging into battle. And it is kind of like that. The battle is, the battle is not against some external foe. And this is also the, the danger of using the word ego, um, there is no ego, fundamentally. There is no self, no uh, abiding, unchanging self. Uh, but it can be understood as expedient means that some of us, not all of us, some of us can really get our energies stoked up. Uh, and, <laughs> by the way, uh, not succumb to the anxiety or fear that uh, is all but inevitable when we're going into Sashin or when the doctors and nurses are going into the hospital for another 12-hour shift. It can be used, the war metaphor. The Three Pillars of Zen has plenty of such language. I always think of uh, the... Yasutani Roshi's reference in Late Sashin to it's like hand-to-hand -hand combat. The sixth day, the seventh day. But the combat, the combat is to get ever more deeply absorbed in one's practice. That is to, the combat is to resist the tug of our conditioned thinking, our, our thoughts, 
That's, that's the effort. That's the war. Even, uh, in the three pillars of Zen, there are even, uh, cases where it's used, the war metaphor, the, uh, is used to, uh, to become one with Mu. Well, uh, there's a, maybe this is part of the, the Japanese, uh, quality, flavor of the teachings in the three pillars of Zen, which are very much Yasutani Roshi's style. And that is one way to become one with Mu, is to have a sense of, uh, I think the words people use are attacking Mu, uh, penetrating Mu, subduing Mu. And that can work. That, that can That can really inspire one to not get ambushed by thoughts, but just to charge in. Like like we've seen, many of us have seen uh, footage, clips of uh, the, the, the soldiers, the infantry in the trenches during World War I of uh, all as one uh, rising up, pulling themselves out of the trenches and charging into a murderous fire. But the problem with the war metaphor is that it's it's dualistic. And 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 even that isn't by in itself such a terrible thing, but it's it's incomplete. Maybe it is, isn't stretching this too far to, to suggest that this is also the dual nature of attaching to an identity for ourselves, uh, a racial identity, a uh, gender identity, an ethnic identity, that it's a, it's a stage it's a developmental stage and we need to acquire a healthy sense of identity before we can transcend it. It's just so long as we are thinking ourselves, think of ourselves in terms or rather as long as we're thinking of ourselves in terms of <laughs> a self of any kind, then we're not seeing this true self that is no self. Uh, Eula Biss, the author, suggests uh, better, better metaphors for what we are up against now with this pandemic. Uh, she suggests that we can understand health as a public bank. We can understand immunity as a public square. That is, 
in order to maintain a better level of immunity within a community, everyone has to cooperate. She says, refusing to participate in collective protection from disease is antisocial. I assume she means uh, vaccines. She says, especially in this country, it's a manifestation of privilege to rely on the risks that other people have taken in terms of vaccinating themselves and their children and to not take that risk yourself. And she makes a point that anyone who's been practicing Zen has heard, if not experienced, for herself or himself, is that individualism is a psychological mirage. We are not, she says, freestanding individuals. We're always in relationship to other people and to other people's bodies. She said more about community responsibility. She uh, recounted the uh, terrible problem with polio in the mid-50s. And uh, she talked about the, uh, the 1954 polio pioneers. These were 650,000 children who were volunteered by their parents to test the first polio vaccine. This obviously expresses the sense of responsibility that the community that we don't seem to have today. Is that pretty um, potent uh, quote she presents from uh, Susan Sontag, who once wrote, Abuse of the military metaphor may be inevitable in a capitalist society, that being a society that increasingly restricts the scope and, credibi the scope and credibility of appeals to ethical principle, in which it is thought foolish not to subject one's actions to the calculus of self-interest and profitability. Yes, I think uh, capitalism or our, or our present version of capitalism may be one of the many huge changes that come uh, on the heels of this pandemic. War... Is, war is one of the few activities in which we're not expected to consider practicality and expense. Once we declare war, then the whole uh, federal treasury uh, can be drained. And fair enough, declaring a metaphorical war on a disease is one of the ways we justify the expense 
and the impracticality of protecting the most vulnerable among us. I mean, look at what, what just happened. Congress uh, passed this legislation over $2 trillion. Uh, what, if, if they hadn't seen this as a war, would they have been willing to pony up for that huge sum? So, Eulabis makes the point that we need some way of justifying actions besides relying on self-interest and profit. Again, what metaphors uh, that, that communicate the same urgency, the same um, huge threat um, as, as when we talk about war, but while avoiding this idea of an imagined enemy and an exaggerated nationalism that come with that may come with that. She makes the, uh, the overall point that our metaphors prime how we think and act. Immigrants uh, in these past three and a half years have sometimes been described as bacteria. Never mind that we're all basically immigrants to this continent. And then we, she says, we translate information that we've learned about our bodies being under threat to our nation being under threat. And that happens at a level of thought that is not entirely conscious. Our metaphors prime how we think and act. And by using war as a metaphor, we're quietly giving our minds instruction in how to think. And that thinking translates into action. So, just to step back, the metaphors we, we use influence the way we think. And of course, we know as Zen practitioners that the way we think influences our actions. And now, uh, to get to her main point, that she, she proposes a metaphor uh, in which disease is seen as an education. She, uh, she said she did a two-hour interview of a leading immunologist, and uh, he used strictly educational metaphors. He referred to pathogens, that's the bad stuff, <laughs> as tutoring us, tutoring the immune system. Uh, there's, they even use the word naive in, t in a technical way. Uh, we, they speak of immune systems as being naive. For example, the immune systems, the immune systems of children are called naive because they've not yet learned how to form the antibodies against them. One of the reasons the virus spares very young children so often is because their naive systems don't overreact. <coughs> and this is, uh, this is well, I've heard, one of the big distinctions between this pandemic 
this coronavirus and the uh, great influenza uh, of 1918. In that one, it was uh, predominantly younger people who succumbed. Young, their, their, their immune systems were overreacting. I don't know about children, though, in that one. So immunologists uh, suggest that in the case of a cold, instead of saying, I'm fighting the cold, we could say, I'm getting schooled by it. And this presents a different psychological posture. Again, changing the language changes our relationship to sickness and disease. War makes you feel embattled, but if you feel like you're getting an education, you feel as though you're making progress. You're getting somewhere. It's wonderful, isn't it? That we're, we're, we're in this together with the virus. It's very, very Buddhistic understanding of the indivisibility of all existences. Gaia, the earth, waters, and air as one. She, uh, she then extends the education metaphor and saying, what can we as a country learn from this experience? There is a a very pregnant question. What can we as a country learn from this experience? Well, those of us who are engaged in some kind of a spiritual practice can be reminded that, uh, well, in, in Zen terms, that uh, ignorance, ignorance of the indivisibility of all phenomena leads to greed, greed, ill will, delusion, and those in turn lead to a misuse or exploitation of nature. dug out a uh, an article by a by a science and, and a reporter from the New York Times uh, whose beat is science and environment and uh, the article is called destroying nature releases infectious diseases and we're going to read parts of this article and, and let me say right from the outset that this is from 2012, eight years ago. He, the, the, the author Jim, Jim Robbins, he and many like him uh, were working on how to prevent another pandemic eight years ago. Here's how the article begins. The article is called The Ecology of Disease. 
There's a term biologists and economists use these days, ecosystem services, which it refers to the many ways nature supports the human endeavor. So forests filter the water we drink and they, uh, they purify the, wa- the air of carbon dioxide. Birds and bees pollinate crops. He says, if we fail to understand and take care of the natural world, it can cause a breakdown of these systems and come back to haunt us in ways we know little about. A critical example is a developing model of infectious disease that shows that most epidemics, AIDS, Ebola, West Nile, SARS, Lyme disease, and hundreds more that have occurred over the past several decades don't just happen. They are a result of things people do to nature. He goes on, disease, it turns out, is largely an environmental issue. 60% of emerging infectious diseases that affect humans are zoonic, that is, they originate in animals. And more than two-thirds of those originate in wildlife. (coughs) He goes on, teams of veterinarians and conservation biologists are in the midst of a global effort with medical doctors and epidemiologists to understand the ecology of disease. It's part of a project called PREDICT, which is financed by the United States Agency for International Development. Uh, My guess is that, like so many of the federal agencies, this one has been gutted by the current administration, United States Agency for International Development. I think I heard that somewhere. Maybe I'm wrong. He goes on, experts are trying to figure out, based on how people alter the landscape with a new farm or road, for example, where the next diseases are likely to spill over into humans and how to spot them when they do emerge, before they can spread. They are gathering blood, saliva, and other samples from high-risk wildlife species to create a library of viruses so that if one does infect humans, it can be more quickly identified. And they are studying ways of managing forests, wildlife, and livestock to prevent diseases from leaving the woods and becoming the next pandemic. It isn't only a public health issue, but an economic one. And listen to this outdated statistic. He says, the World Bank has estimated that a severe influenza pandemic, for example, could cost the world economy $3 trillion. And we're on track. We're on track to spend that much in this country alone by the the federal government. The problem is exacerbated by how livestock are kept in poor countries. And then here, just uh, pulling out some more detail here, the Nipah virus in South Asia and the closely related Hendra virus in Australia, both in the genus of Hennepa viruses, are the most urgent examples of how disrupting an ecosystem can cause disease. 
the viruses originated with fruit bats. Sometimes they're called flying foxes, but let's say fruit bats. They are messy eaters, no small matter in this scenario. They often hang upside down, looking like Dracula wrapped tightly in their membranous wings and eat fruit by masticating the pulp and then spitting out the juices and seeds. He says that the, uh, the bats have evolved with this Hennepa virus over millions of years, so they don't, they're not affected much by it. But it says once the virus breaks out of the bats and into species that haven't evolved with it, a horror show can occur, as did in the 1999 in rural Malaysia. It's likely that a bat dropped a piece of chewed fruit into a piggery in a forest. The pigs became infected with the virus and amplified it, and it jumped to humans. That's the that's the key thing in this chain of lethality is the um, jumping the species barrier. So it got went from bats to pigs and then of course people eat pigs, especially in China and maybe Malaysia apparently. And uh, the uh, lethality of this 1991 in Malaysia was something like uh, 35% way, way more than our current pandemic. And then he says, there's no cure or vaccine for that particular disease. In Australia, um, suburbanization lured infected bats that were once forest dwellers into backyards and pastures. And that's what I've heard, uh, I'm not on solid ground here, but that's, I do remember hearing that as speculation, at least, as to what happened when this uh, coronavirus uh, got going in China, um, was that they have these uh, horrible, what they call wet markets, where they have all kinds of live animals. I, I saw... One of those when I was on one of my pilgrimages in China will never be able to get that out of my storehouse consciousness. So I won't go into any description. But it's uh, the Chinese are notorious for eating every single body part of every single animal we can imagine. And Buyers like to have to buy them live. And I heard, by the way, just yesterday, that now that uh, now with the coronavirus uh, and retreat in China, what do you know? But they've opened up these wet markets again. My mind goes to some words of a Chinese master from many centuries ago. He says, it's easier to liberate the beasts than to liberate human beings. Uh, Jim Robbins continues, 
experts say it's critical to understand underlying causes of disease. Any emerging disease in the last 30 or 40 years has come about as a result of encroachment into wildlands and changes in demography. He continues, diseases have always come out of the woods and wildlife and found their way into human populations. The plague, back in the Middle Ages, the plague and malaria are two examples. But emerging diseases have quadrupled in the last half century, experts say, largely because of increasing human encroachment into habitat, especially in disease hotspots around the globe mostly in tropical regions, <laughs> and now in our own New York City, with Chicago next. And with modern air travel and a robust market in wildlife trafficking, the potential for serious outbreak in large population centers is enormous. Again, this was written eight years ago. The key to forecasting and preventing the next pandemic, experts say, is understanding what they call the protective effects of nature intact. Here's one that comes close to home, Lyme disease, uh, he, which he describes as the East Coast scourge, is very much a product of human changes to the environment. Uh, the reduction and fragmentation of large contiguous forests. So this kind of development, deforestation here in the Northeast United States, chased off predators, wolves, foxes, owls, and hawks. And that resulted in a five-fold increase in white-footed mice, which are great reservoirs for the Lyme bacteria. And he says, and they are terrible groomers. When possums or gray squirrels groom, they remove 90% of the larval ticks that spread the disease, but mice kill just half. Well, that's enough for uh, Jim Robbins' chillingly prescient work, his article. Now, let's go back to the koan itself. Yunmen's medicine and sickness. Yunmen said to his disciples, medicine and sickness correspond to each other. One way that to understand this is in terms of dependent co-arising. That there, there, there is no medicine without sickness, and there's no sickness without medicine. I mean, just just semantically, the word medicine makes no sense, except in relationship to sickness or illness, disease, 
and vice versa. And this is goes straight down the middle of Zen teaching. Words, the danger of words and how we are deceived by words. The whole earth is medicine, Yunmen continues. There's a, there's a saying in Zen, everything is Buddha. Everything is teaching. Eulabis would certainly subscribe to this idea of the pandemic as schooling us, teaching us. Most obviously, uh, the pandemic is is uh, making us face again what we can we as a country can learn from this experience, what we can learn about our economy, whether rapacious capitalism is something that will kill us in the end, but also it can make us reflect on whom we value, who in our society we value, who is essential. That word has been tossed around a lot the last three weeks. What is, an, what is essential work? Who's endangered and who's compensated for that danger? Well, of course, those on the front lines, doctors and nurses, especially in the hospitals, other healthcare professionals, and also at home, AIDS, home health care, AIDS, hospice professionals, but also beyond that, uh, supermarket employees, employees of pharmacies and other stores that are, remain open now and which we rely on, and, and truck drivers. Where would we be without the truck drivers? And the, all of those who are maintaining food deliveries. These people are all under risk. Of course, first the first the first responders especially. It's uh it's just marvelous the way uh, a new a new ritual, a daily ritual has come up in New York City where at seven o'clock which I'm told is when the, the, the change of shifts, change of 12-hour shifts, at 7 o'clock in the evening, uh, the city erupts in tribute, song, and cheering for these frontline health care professionals. It's a long way, a long way, let's say forward, from the ticker tape parades for soldiers after after the wars and imagine how differently these when this is all over when we finally get through this pandemic how differently 
the these surviving essential workers will feel than the soldiers who survived the wars, which everyone says is so immensely more complicated, complicated by guilt and PTSD. Uh, I, in discussing this koan many years ago with Robert Goldman Sensei um, in uh, Germany, uh, he brought forth this perfectly fitting uh, example of this medicine and sickness uh, correspond to each other. In, uh, in terms of homeopathy, he's uh, not only a uh, an allopathic physician, but a homeopathic physician. And what he schooled me on is the sort of the basic principle of homeopathy. And it's, it's this, the substance that causes the symptom in a non-sick person also removes the symptom in a sick person. So let's say there's a homeopathic remedy, uh, it's called arsenic. So arsenic would cause big problems in a healthy person, but in a sick person, it removes the, the symptoms. And the, the, it's all, this is whittled down to the statement, the homeopathic creed, which is the similar cures the similar. Well, I'm not claiming uh, that homeopathy works or it doesn't. Uh, I would never bet any money against it, especially hearing stories of the remarkable cures that Robert Sensei himself has done in homeopathy, but I know nothing about it. Of course, when Yun Men is talking about medicine, and, when he's talking about sickness and medicine, he's, he is speaking metaphorically. He's not talking about medical matters. What is the fundamental sickness? It is ignorance of the true nature of things. Believing in the world as fragmented, as divided, us and them, self and other. This is the fundamental sickness. The disease in Zen, well, we know, is maintaining a stabilized, aware mind, free of thoughts, whether on the mat or in daily activities. And with respect to these two words, sickness and illness, you could say that all the elements and phenomena of the universe are medicines. They're all teaching. Sickness is just the misuse of this or that element. 
as we we know is happening on a colossal horrifying scale now worldwide the fundamental human sickness is ego delusion the cause of our suffering as hakuin says it but that very suffering can lead us to the medicine of practice in the sickness is medicine for the taking medicine and sickness these two are merely relative and both at source are emptiness seeing into this source this realm of emptiness is the ultimate cure all beings without number i vow to liberate endless blind passions i vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure i vow to penetrate the great way of buddha i vow to attain all beings without number i vow to liberate endless blind passions i vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure i vow to penetrate the great way of buddha i vow to attain all beings without number i vow to liberate endless blind passions i vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure i vow to penetrate the great way of buddha i vow to attain